When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. So, David, you you telling me off mic that you've uh, just completed a documentary about Marshawn Lynch. Uh, why is he so fascinating a figure for you? Well, I live in Seattle. On some level, it simply began that I was a rather zealous fan of him as a player, but it quickly migrated into an appreciation of him as somebody who uses silence, echo, and mimicry as key tools of cultural resistance. It's a really, really interesting human being to me as someone who's trying, sometimes failing, but always trying to be true to himself in a capitalist, racist society that's trying to exploit him, but that he's also trying to exploit. I think some interesting overlap, oddly, to my Trump book, in what way is somebody like Marshawn Lynch different from other African-American NFL players? And in what way do you think is more significant than Colin Kaepernick then? Well, I mean, I would love to do a film on Kaepernick, who interests me greatly too. But in a way, Kaepernick is, there's, you know, it's a pretty overt story, although I don't know that much about him. But Lynch is different, of course. And I think he has, in many ways, birthed a mini generation of black athletes who have learned from him how to play back to a largely white sports writing cohort that Lynch is different from Kaepernick or different from Richard Sherman in that he, to me, is actually finding in silence itself, almost like Bartleby, I don't know if you remember Bartleby, the Scrivener from that wonderful Herman Melville novella, who would always say, when asked to perform any task, he would say, I prefer not to. You know, there are many ways to resist the cultural hegemony. And one of them, Lynch has shown us, is through silence, through non-participation, through studied mimicry. And so to me, he's a really interesting figure who does transcend sports. I, have in a way, have written three books about black athletes or 
What about Gary Payton, who's also from Oakland, who was a kind of famous so-called trash talker? And then I, I did a, a book about Ichiro, the Japanese baseball player who would exist at variance to American sports cliche. They form a kind of trilogy to me. I, I sort of grew up as a jock and I also... David, David, I have to stop you. You sound nothing like a jock. <laughs> well, I was a jock. At, at what point did you realize you'd put your jock-like ways behind well, you? Well, I had a, I was never that good, but I was a terribly devoted athlete through high school. And then toward the middle or end of high school, I had a very bad broken leg, you know, so, and so I was out of action for a, f- a full year. And so transitioned to uh, suddenly playing chess, becoming the editor of my high school paper, starting to write fiction, and thus ended my athletic career. But there's something interesting there in my in my interest in athletes and bodies and physical grace. To me, it's not a coincidence that these three people, Lynch, Ichiro, and Peyton, they all exist at some interesting intersection, I think, of athletics and language. And there's definitely an intersection, isn't there, between the status of black athletes in America and white America, white America, middle America, rural America, seeing them as the latest incarnation of uppity Negroes, that they have this power through wealth so why are they complaining you've made your money shut up they're not spokesmen for urban masses of of black america and and that is a a very resonant kind of cultural touchstone at the moment it really is i mean it's it's no coincidence that trump plays that card as often as he possibly can obviously on some level one can understand that disgruntled fan who's making $38,000 a year or middle-class existence is. And here's someone who's a multimillionaire who's, say, refusing to talk to the press. And that, you know, on some highly rational or logical level, one can understand that fan's disgruntlement, that he or she may not make in their whole lifetime what the athlete makes in a single year. What the question becomes is, is history still alive? Does the history of African-American life still resonate? Does the history of slavery, you know, slavery as the original sin of American life, 400 years of oppression of black people, there's a sense among certain disenfranchised white people that somehow history has been declared over and that we're starting afresh, and that black people should should take what they might get and move on without any sense of history still being present. And then there are people, and there are black athletes and black performers who, in a way, are trying to say history is still alive. The toxin of slavery is still present as a poison in American life. And it's not clear what the, quote, solution will ever be. Are there ever going to be reparations? And I'm I'm terribly interested in sport as reparations theater. And I think that's really the nub of it. It's one of the realms of American life in which, Mm -hmm. in a sense, black athletes hold the power. 
in, say, American football. But, but, <coughs> but me, do are, they if they don't own the teams? Of course, ultimately, you know, there's billionaires and millionaires. You know, as Chris Rock says, you know, there's rich and there's wealthy. And um, the players tend to be rich. The owners tend to be wealthy. But it's a kind of, of reparations theater in which the athletes, I think, are getting just a tiny, delicious part of mild reparations by refusing to play the utterly dutiful soldier and doing everything that the white culture, the white media and white ownership. But but you could also argue though that they're just playing an age old role, a gladiatorial role. We're back in Rome. It's bread and circuses. It's throw in the black guys to fight and to compete against each other and us, the real Americans, white America, sit round and, and watches, and we are duly entertained. Well, that's absolutely true. And I think what, what gives people pause is precisely that the audience simply wants to see the players as pure bodies. Mm. As I argue in the Trump book, that most hugely iconic celebrities, from Jesus to Elvis to Madonna, to Trump tend to embody cultural contradiction. Napoleon, say, if we want to talk entirely about Marshawn Lynch, it's totally fine by me. But if we want to get to Trump and contradiction and some weird ways in which, in strange way, the the Marshawn Lynch film and the Trump book, for me, have a a funny overlap. I think the, the one of the overlaps is that in a way Trump has swallowed America whole. He is this almost unfathomable contradiction. I mean, he seems as if he's somebody who who comes out of the pen of you know everyone from C. Clair Lewis to Don DeLillo to 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 William S. Burroughs. I mean, he is such an amazing answer. I, I think you raise an interesting comparison between Napoleon and Trump. Uh, one person undoubtedly a genius but saw himself as an outsider just like Trump does Trump sees himself as an outsider and furiously wants to be an insider but they're two characters of which I think Napoleon is the person after Jesus which there are the most books I think it's Napoleon Bonaparte it's something like that more than Lincoln only only Americans are fascinated with Lincoln the whole the whole world is fascinated with with, with, by Napoleon Napoleon. and Trump similarly will be somebody that long after his impeachment fall from grace disgrace you know leaves after his second term whatever then when he dies so many books will be written about Donald Trump because he's an absolutely fascinating contradictory person but David this has been a most interesting and atypical intro to the show so I'm actually going to do my intro now (laughs) and I'm I'm actually going to run the show as this so I'm going to say hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other I'm Royfield Brown sat in the Bay Area today I'm joined by David Shields a best-selling author of some 22 books including Black Planet other people People, takes and mistakes and the trouble with men reflections on sex love marriage porn and power now that's actually forthcoming in 2019 but in 2018 he's written we've got he's got his new book nobody hates trump more than trump and intervention it's an interesting book it's fun it's scary it's thought-provoking 
It's the type of read which acts as a mirror, like a black mirror that looks at Trump and reflected back is modern America. David, first off, we've had, as I've said, kind of uh, just before I did the, actually the intro for the show, some 16 minutes in. This has been somewhat of a, a lovely way just to, just to meet you and just to talk about America through sports. I like American football. Since I moved to the US uh, some four years ago, I've kind of reacquainted myself with it. Now, reading your book, you're a much brighter man than me, sir. And I'm going to say that up front. And this isn't <laughs> faux host humility either. Such a nasty one. Hillary Clinton's going to be a horrible president. Hey, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. But we have some bad hombres here, and we're going to get them out. And some, I assume, are good people. But we're going to build a wall. (laughs) Who's going to pay for the wall? You've called women you don't like fat pigs? dogs take a look at her she's a slob slobs and disgusting animals your twitter account only rosie o'donnell <laughs> like you wouldn't have your job if you weren't beautiful they're worried about my tone oh look at my african-american over here look at him donald j trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of muslims entering the united states usa usa wow don't worry about that baby i love babies so I like it. What a baby. Actually, I was only kidding. You can get the baby out of here. Pocahontas. That's this Elizabeth Warren. I call her Goofy. And ISIS now is building a hotel in Iraq. They're competing with me. You believe it? If Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. You know? Stop <laughs> it. Oh, it's so weird. Stop You know what? You are moving sick. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. You're moving up. I never attacked him on his look. And believe me, there's plenty of subject matter right there. That I can tell you. But Jake, Jake, they said to Marco Rubio, are you having fun? He's sweating like a pig. I never saw a guy sweat like this. You got to get out there November 8th. I don't care how sick you are. Vote for Donald J. Trump. Very simple. Very simple. Very simple. Tell us, why is Trump the president that America deserves? Well, obviously, I spent 200 pages trying to figure that out. But um, obviously, it's not a single answer, Roy Field. But I think what comes to mind is this idea of sort of karmic payback in American life, the enormous domination in American culture of reality television. You know, what's that wonderful line I have in the book from Andrew O'Hare, who says, in American entertainment, we crave the illusion of reality because in our actual life, we experience hardly any. And I think the degree of simulacrum in American public life, from sports to entertainment to politics, is just so extreme that we have lived so deeply in a bubble, in a sort of Kardashian culture in which celebrity is the coin of the realm and in which there's 
seemingly in American life, almost no distinction between the real and the fictive. Trump, as you say, a kind of dark mirror or black magic figure who who tells us everything that we don't want to know about American life. There's hardly an aspect of American life from, you know, the Me Too movement to racism to misogyny to above all, you know, and I think he's also hugely a conversation with Obama. I think there's no way Trump happens without Obama. I think in many ways. But but I'm going to jump in because I'm going to stop you. I don't want to talk about Obama just yet. Let me just, because I'm the Englishman, I'm the Englishman on American shores. So I just want to deal with this aspect of America because I think, um, I think that you actually like Trump to a degree because I think that in him you see that he is America, kind of toad, warts and all in one person, that he, that he is manifest the nation of contradictions and it ma- and it makes america easier to write because you're such an observer and such uh, and you have such a way of encapsulating the nuance of america and trump makes you being the observer of the american psyche much easier to write and to understand because trump is money he is me too his New York City, his tabloid culture, his reality TV, his white resentment, his NFL sport, his WWE, his Fox TV. He's a bricolage of what is modern America, well, isn't he? We should hire you to write the flap copy. I mean, you've really, um, that's really beautifully said. I think you've summarized it, you know, terribly well. And I think you're also right that I have a not so secret you know, at least fascination. And there's part of me, and I think that's the scary part of the book, is that, and maybe it's white privilege, or maybe it's that he's not coming after me quite yet. But you are an elitist. He has got you in his uh, in his sights, right. hasn't he, in his crosshairs. I'm Jewish, and I'm a professor, and I can only hope that, you know, that Trump sues me and sues the book. You know, I think... <laughs> There is something punk about him. There was that wonderful essay in the Atlantic a couple of years ago by James Parker, which talked about Trump as either faux punk or quasi punk or would be punk, you know, that he has real connections to, say, Johnny Rotten at all. There is part of me that can't stand American politesse, that can't stand American liberal, mealy mouthed cowardice that can't stand American academic PC culture that your fellow Brit Louis Theroux has that great line in the book where he was interviewed by I think the Guardian who said that in a shame culture being shameless gives you a kind of weird power and Theroux went on to say that you know he doesn't say that he likes Trump but he is fascinated by him and maybe sort of admires him as a performer. I think that's part of a big part of the book is that I think I'm not sure I would say Trump is a genius or an idiot savant or just a lucky SOB, but you know, he is a performer. Every single thing he does is pure performance. He has learned an awful lot from Roy Cohn, from Howard Stern, 
above all from the apprentice. There's not a thing that he does that isn't performative. And so somehow I'm, I'm focusing on that, that moment where he's being interviewed by Bill O'Reilly, who was criticizing Putin. And Putin said, mm-hmm. Putin's a killer. Trump responded, well, we're not so innocent. We've killed plenty of people, too. And that's almost an exact quote and echo from a similar moment from The Godfather. I do have a secret admiration of Trump. I would say that admiration has largely ceased or is declining or is dwindling, but I'm fascinated by his performative black magic. And I think that's what the book tries to explore. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think you we need to be ashamed to say that we can be in admiration for some aspects of, of Donald Trump and, and what he's actually done. The fact that he can bareface lie, there is part of me actually gives him a thumbs up for that to say, you know what, you can stare a nation in in the face and lie to them. And he does it repeatedly. And though it's incredibly destructive, I actually do admire somebody that isn't mealy mouthed <laughs> about when they're lying. I know what you mean. Like, I suppose the question I have for you, which in a way the book is not able to answer, is how in the world does he manage to pull it off? Mm. I would say I still don't get it. That you know, and in a way, it's sort of the, the same question: is is he a total idiot or is he an oddly gifted? quasi-genius performer, obviously a little of both, but after spending a year and a half of writing the book and thinking about it as carefully as I could, how does Trump pull off that thing where almost hour by hour he says the most transparent fiction? Do you have any any insight either as a... I don't because I'm still new to American shores culturally. Right. But but what you do have in America, which we don't have in the US, you're much more actually deferential to people in power over here. And there is a, a massive contradiction. So within the psyche of America and Americans, you tear down politicians. You say, oh, they're all corrupt. They're all corrupt, which is a very Anglo-Saxon Protestant way of looking at people that want to obtain power because, because actually you need to hold them to account and to keep them honest. And it's very different from, let's say, uh, interesting. I was going to say very different from how all Europeans do it. The Italians just say all our politicians are corrupt and just turn their right. backs on them in the way that we don't quite do in the Anglo-Saxon sphere. And, and Canadians don't automatically think that somebody who wants to attain office is corrupt, though um, though there is that definitely that strain, definitely in right wing politics in, in the U.S., but then your media is much more acquiescent. So they don't call out lies as lies. In the UK, we have the institution of the BBC, which is famously impartial. But we are much more ready to actually say that is not correct and to hold a politician to account. Interestingly, there was Trump. Trump's appointee to be the ambassador for Holland. 
but he's not right. a career diplomat. He was placed there by the Trump administration. And in his first press conference, he said something about the rising tide of Islamic uh, crime, right. Right. terrorism that, in the yeah. Netherlands. Yes. And the journalist just mm. said, that's not true. Where are your facts? They called him out immediately. They didn't politely uh, take the statement. They said, right. that is not true. Where are your facts? And he was dumbfounded. Right. Absolutely dumbfounded. And there is a big difference between the relative acquiescence of American media and I would say European media. And I'd put British media in that as well. Trump has gone down like a lead balloon everywhere else in the educated world because people just say that couldn't happen here. And yes, there are Trump-like acolytes in Poland and in Hungary, but these are uh, these countries have a very peculiar recent history that come out of communism and then they've had the light of capitalism thrown on them. And those countries are still trying to find that existential soul, so to speak, in the modern world. That's not to excuse mm-hmm. the xenophobia of Oban in Hungary or of the current regime in Poland. But it's harder, and I know there is Le Pen in France, but it's harder in Western Europe where there is a tradition of holding truth to power for for that type of zen, xenophobe populist to come to power in the way that you have Trump in the US. And yes, we have Nigel Farage in the UK. So I'm not saying that we're immune to it at all. But the, the media holds a massive part in this. And I think one of the reasons, and I, I'm not saying anything particularly new in this, but one of the reasons why this has been able to happen in the States is because your media is so partisan. And and is so divided in a way again that it isn't in Western Europe that there is still, there I say, mainstream media glue in France, in Germany, in Britain. So that middle ground is held. Whereas under Reagan, he deregulated um, TV and TV news, mm-hmm. so you could have right wing news. And people have tried to have left wing news. It doesn't quite work in the same way. Because the devil, there's a very easy answer, David. Right wing news is entertaining. I've told this story, the story I'm about to tell you, I've told this a thousand times. Um, it goes like this I first came to America in 1996. My, my grandfather, who now passed away, used to live in New Orleans. I spent a month with him in New Orleans. We were driving across, which I believe is like the longest bridge in the world or something or another. And he was listening to this guy shout and rail and said, the president is a fraud. He should be impeached. He's he's lying to the American people. And I was shocked. How could somebody be saying something like this on on radio, on broadcast radio? You couldn't have uh, somebody be so partisan in the UK. You can can say that somebody has, has told a lie, but this guy was going on and on and on. And I says... Granddad, why are you listening to this person? I guess that my grandfather, being black, uh, was going to be a a Democrat, and he was. And he says, this man's an arse, but he's entertaining. It's entertaining. Therein lies a lot of the truth around right-wing TV and right-wing news. I then realised some 12 years later, um, at the election of Obama, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh. My grandfather listened to Rush Limbaugh. That meant nothing to me back then. And because of 
uh, political correctness because of a whole slew of reasons and issues which the right do not hold itself accountable to, they can, in effect, call a spade a spade in a way that we're much more mealy-mouthed kind mm. of on the left. So you, you look at the ratings. I know the ratings for Rosh Limbaugh are down in, in a world of Breitbart and a, a thousand and Tucker Carlson and a thousand and one other right-wing uh, polemics. But the core of it still remains. I love Rachel Maddow, but she's not as entertaining as Ben Shapiro. I intellectually align with Rachel Maddow and I listen to that show because I listen to it as a podcast, not actually as the TV show. And and I learn stuff and I go, right, that is what right. I think I should you know, believe and, and align up against his political thought. Her brand, so called, I, I must admit that I watch almost every night Maddow, as probably most of the people that we know do. And you know, part of what she does so well is that she that she is at least mildly funny. That she's you know deadly serious, but she has no, and she can have right. a little bit of a laugh. She can. You'll have more belly laughs out of Ben Shapiro. Right wing political shows are more entertaining, and and I think people on the left need to realize that. My grandfather, who's a Democrat, listened to Rush right. Limbaugh. He didn't vote Republican. He would hate listen and he would laugh and he'd be entertained and he listened every day. You know, as part of, of this book or even now trying to be an informed citizen, I'll listen to Limbaugh for a couple of minutes every week or so just to, to check in on what maybe I too am too partisan, but maybe Limbaugh has lost whatever mile chops he once had but he's not to me even remotely funny or but i think it was also the shock of some of the things he right. was saying that, right. that he found that entertaining yeah because rush limbar is not a wit or a wag right. no he's right. not right but it's just oh my goodness you've actually said that you've gone right. there there was an entertainment in right. that but i think rush limbar and donald trump not only do they share the same political outlook, but they have something else in common. And I think Rush Limbaugh doesn't find any pleasure in anything. And you say in your book that Trump finds no pleasure in anything. And this is one of these key kind of psychological bricks. And we've kind of touched on this before. Is he some kind of stoic philosopher genius or he's just an idiot? But if Trump can't take pleasure in anything do you think he even enjoyed having sex with stormy apparently not and i don't know if you've read the latest stormy stormy moment where she was describing trump's less than impressive machinery and um (laughs) and um i think you know how many partners has trump had sex with probably several hundred if not in the thousands and i think he doesn't strike me as essentialist i think he strikes me as someone who is a kind of numerologist there's some you know huge abyss he's trying to fill some huge gap in his psychic armature and he he is clearly a walking dead man and i think that um for certain kinds of people who are completely broken that i think being able to leverage power briefly into sexual conquest. You know, I'm not 
judging it morally per se so much as trying to cast some psychological light on it. So when you imagine, as we all do, the moment between Storm and Trumpy, or Trump and Stormy, um, <laughs> um, you know, like you try to imagine the, the moment, I just think, I don't know, it's I'm trying to crawl as inside Trump's brain, as weird as that is. And um, there's a couple passages in the book when he really does acknowledge that all of this is for naught. I think he has, you know, no spiritual yearning, no religious yearning, no aesthetic yearning. It's a kind of um, how many buildings have you pretended to build? How many women have you paid to sleep to sleep with? And, you know, what kind of like a showing of a report card to mommy aspect of, you know, I got this, this woman to to sleep with me and that the actual moment, I don't know, do you have a sense that that he's a, like praying of some sort of Sibirai or essentialist, some politician who seems to sort of wallow in the flesh in this really quite visceral way? Um, I think you've put your finger on something, that what Trump is is a numerologist. It For him, it's about numbers 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 it's his in all the size of his inauguration it's his electoral college win it's numbers all the time it's his poll ratings the only the only other aspect where trump um, other than just pure numbers where trump seems to display some real affection is to his daughter uh, ivanka no not to all of his children at all but to her there is something about her which touches I mean, I that, something within him. Right. His other children. I mean, I think that's a very generous reading of his relation to Ivanka. I mean, there's that this one chapter of the Trump book, which I sort of like the title. I, I call it something like "Sadness Inducing Mirrors." That that incredibly interesting moment when he was talking to the athletes from the Paralympics, you know, your connection to right wing radio where he had to say, I mean, it's so, so fascinating to me when he says, congratulations to the Paralympians. And then he had to say, I watched as much of it as I could, but of course it's very hard to watch. You know, at some point in the book, I call him a very bad personal essayist, like just a couple of days ago maybe even yesterday, he was visiting South Carolina and or North Carolina, and he was saying he had to say in that exactly the way that you just talked about, Roy Field, about uh, your grandfather <clears throat> enjoying right-wing radio because it goes those places you're not supposed to go, that amidst this devastation in South Carolina of of pig, of pig manure being sent throughout the entire water system of South Carolina, Trump has to say that he cares about a particular part of South Carolina. And then he, it, then he says, but I can't tell you why. It was like called Leland County or something. And it turns out, of course, Trump has a fancy golf course there. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, like how could somebody, of course, not hear – that's this completely bizarre thing to say. You know, he had to say it, but of course, by not saying it, he's actually saying it. And he's 
creating a distance between himself and these people. I have a golf course. You're drinking water that's corrupted by pig manure. There was a point I was trying to get to here. I mean, I think it'd be generous to say he has real affection for Ivanka. I think it's quite striking among his his other children that, you know, she is, let's be honest, she's this beautiful young woman. She's, you know, quite strikingly beautiful. And he has actually even said, "There's, I think I have it in the book, I forgot if it made the final part of the book, that... um. He actually says, like a sort of six-year-old having his, you know, or a, a two-year-old being proud of his first bowel movement, Trump says that she's one of the, m- the most beautiful women on the planet. And then he actually <laughs> says, I was one half of making her. You know, I was part of making this beautiful creature. He actually always ar- articulates that thing that in the reptilian part of our brain that we might be thinking that we have a golf course and that we're not drowning in pig manure or that we're proud that we're the father of this beautiful young woman. So I think it's quite striking that the other children are either slightly goofy looking or the younger boy, Baron, you know, there's thoughts that he suffers from Asperger's, which may or may not be true. My point is that unbelievably self-parodically narcissistic way of Trump, I think he feels less affection for Ivanka per se, and even feels some kind of oddly interesting sort of titillating incestuous drive toward her, which as he's mentioned many, many times, but in particular, I think he feels validated by her that, you know, she's this kind of perfect looking human being. I think with Trump, it goes no further than that. I mean, Trump has that crucial line, crucial line in the book where he says, his interviewer says, you're a shallow human being. And Trump says, yes, of course I'm shallow. I'm completely shallow. And then Trump says something like, it's a key to my success. Would you push back against that and think Trump truly has affection and love for Ivanka? To me, it's it's very simple and completely narcissistic. You two things. You have reduced his affection towards Ivanka down to numbers again. It was one half, you know. <laughs> right. So, so, so bravo for that. And I think again, I think you're correct in that you said, well, she is classically in terms of Western ideals of beauty. She's she is attractive, right. and he sees that. Right. And. Trump likes shiny, beautiful things, doesn't he? So he looks at her and he goes, well, yeah, she's beautiful. And I actually thought you were going to pull out that that line where he said before that if she wasn't his daughter, he would date her. Sure. Which he's famously said. Sure. So, so, yeah, so there's, I'm probably conflating the fact that he's spoken glowingly about her and also her position within the whole kind of Trump organization because she's obviously had some level of, of intelligence. She obviously does. Um, I that, don't know about that, that. I mean, she's you know she seems. I don't know. She seems, well, she's she, she's competent. She can she can hold herself. She she can. You know, let, let let's give her that. She's not she's not as dumb as a rock. But anyway, I, I'm really interested in your take. In in a way, you've improved on anything I've said. That you know, this your um, <laughs> listen. You're the dude that's written the book. Your left center right. father or or grandfather. The anecdote of you guys driving across where a bridge in New Orleans, your grandfather 
And I don't know if you were old enough to laugh at the right wing person on, but that that's, in a way, I'm not sure if my book has a profounder insight than, you know, this idea that it's fun to be bad. And it's fun to watch somebody be bad because that you're still one one step removed, aren't you? You can hear somebody come out with racist stuff and go, oh, right. right. But you're not a racist. You know, you're not a racist, but they've said it. And I'm going to I'm going to watch them say it. I'm going to listen to them say it. And and I think there's a lot of that which is going on in America. Yes. And yeah, you know, my grandfather has kind of distilled a lot of the viewpoint of a certain section of America that they're watching this thing and they're being entertained. And you know what? Trump is blowing shit up or whatever. And at least it's entertaining. And that's kind of one of the lines within your book, isn't it? That Trump wants to blow things up and he's kind of a horseman of some kind of apocalypse. But how does that chime with the fact that Trump sees himself fundamentally as a builder, you know, the man that builds gleaming towers all the time? That's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, it really is a crucial part of the book of kind of that I really do argue there is a human and cultural and maybe even specifically acute American death wish that likes <laughs> to watch stuff blow up, particularly strong American strain of it now, and that Apocalypse Always is the last chapter of the book, and that we love flirting with the apocalypse. Otherwise, why would we watch horror movies and WWE and the NFL? I mean, it's really, really fun to watch, as you say, disaster from a slight remove. And, you know, even just a couple of nights ago, Hillary was on Maddow, and, you know, I'm a huge Maddow fan, but after five minutes, I turned it off or put it on mute. I just cannot, could not listen to Hillary. She is so damn boring Mm -hmm. and so vetted, so crowdsourced, so legally cleaned up. She is so unreal, and... I don't know if you know the the British writer Jonathan Rabin's work. He's a friend of mine here in Seattle. He's a wonderful writer. And Rabin talks about a moment during the election where he was watching his television from afar across the room. And I guess the sound was on, on mute and Hillary was talking and he he could tell what she was saying without even having to turn it up and had no desire to turn it up. And Jonathan is in a wheelchair now from a stroke, but Trump came on shortly afterward. He ended up wheeling across the room because he simply wanted to hear what Trump was going to say, because it might be funny or it might be entertaining or it might slightly shock one in the way that say that your grandfather was enjoying being slightly shocked by the right wing preacher or whatever as you guys cross the bridge. But I think, you know, it's a bit of a false contradiction. I think, you know, you say, okay, Trump is supposedly a builder, but he likes to blow shit up. I mean, I guess it's kind of an interesting idea. And I can think about that some more Roy Field, but is he really a builder? I mean, it's not as if he's is Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, he's just a guy who slaps 
his name on a few buildings. Trump's name is on 17 buildings in New York City, only five of which Trump actually owns. And throughout the world, Trump is essentially a kind of brander or, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not saying anything new either, but that, you know, the idea that he, that he loves making things is, I think, a bit of a non-starter, I think. I mean, to me, he's more of a, a, a sort of first-class bullshit artist. That, to me, fits <laughs> with blowing shit up. You know, have you heard of this term, kayfabe? It's a, it's a K-A-Y-F-A-B-E. It's a term among carnival workers in the U.S. where basically the participant in the carnival knows that the game is rigged against them, that, you know, if you try to throw a ring on top of a particular post, that it's almost impossible to throw the ring on the post. Uh-huh. And the, the carnival, the, the carny worker knows it's an illusion. And they call that kayfabe, which I guess is sort of, of pig Latin for sort of something like fabulous, okay. Anyway, I find that a very rich term for, or if you want to call it, the heel in, you know, in WWE, where I actually get in arguments with people about this, but I actually think I'm, I'm right. Namely, I think Trump's base, so-called, knows that what Trump is selling is total nonsense. They know Trump is actually lying. And it's really fun fan fiction to go along with the fuck you game. It's a, it's a big WWE hustle. It's kayfabe. Trump knows that, that he's lying. The audience knows that he's lying. But it's a serious fuck you to all the people who have been telling them how to live their lives since 1972. So that, that would be my pushback against the idea that somehow Trump is simultaneously... Frank Lloyd Wright and also um, Robert Oppenheimer, destroyer of worlds, that he's that he's neither but rather a kind of a classic bull in a China shop. And some people are really tired of the China shop. And it's really, really fun and very, very spiritually refreshing mm. to watch all that that China splatter i think i think that that's correct that there are a lot of people on the right who know that is a snake oil salesman it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And you definitely listen to, you know, the one bit of uh, right political uh, thought, which I, I do regularly listen to, is Ben Shapiro. I, I quite like him. He's furiously intelligent. There's no question of that. Um, but I just disagree with 90% right. of his conclusions uh, on anything. But it's interesting to listen to the thought process. And he is not, and he was a never-Trumper before Trump was elected. Um, but I think, you know, so there are definitely some people on the right that go, this man is a fraud. And actually what he always says is that, we knew he was a liar before he got elected. We knew he was a philanderer. We knew all these bad things about him. It's all baked in. So if you accept that, it doesn't matter what is thrown at him now. It's just going to bounce off. You know, we knew all of that. The only difference I would say from that classic Ben Shapiro kind of line of looking at Trump is that I would say people on the right who think who are philosophically of the right, who take all the nuance that goes with that, they knew that. But there are the, and I'm going to lump people together, you know, the lumpen, proletarian, unwashed, um, uneducated, you know, didn't finish high school, blue-collar Trump supporters that actually believe his stuff, that believe he's a self-made millionaire, that don't realise that actually his father was a millionaire and, he's, um, and they believe that everything that, that comes out of his mouth. So there are two bits of, of Trump supporters. There are the Republicans with a, with a small R who believe in right of centre politics, but philosophically also believe in liberal democracy though though they wouldn't ever call it such that they understand that the judiciary needs to be independent and it acts as a check and a balance on executive power etc etc blah 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 they understand all of that and they're republicans with a small r and they'll go along with this stuff because it gets them um tax cuts though they're uncomfortable but there is let's say 20 percent of the american voting populace that is behind this man and they believe everything that he says and and for me what made part of your book quite interesting were the transcripts of the leaked off-air conversations from fox news i'm glad you because i thought you know those were sort of fun to have but i'm not sure what what revelations if any did you get from those well I want you to first explain how how you got your hands on them and and how do you think that Fox really views Trump? Is he just a ratings winner? It just means that more people are going to tune into him because I got the impression that they thought he was an idiot. But that's just me. You know, maybe I I took my took my uh, British left of centre bias into this. So uh, you tell me, how did you first get the transcripts and then what was your reading of them? Right. No, I think those are, I mean, throughout the book are maybe a dozen off-air transcripts, which were leaked to me by an anonymous Fox News source, who obviously by virtue of being anonymous, I can't name here. But um, 
So that's how I got the transcripts. And then <clears throat> I think you, you know, I would agree with you that they're, you know, they're a bit of, you know, not that the book needs comic relief. There's plenty, I think, of sort of tragic comic relief throughout the book. But, you know, they're just a little bit of a little peek behind the screen that I find useful that, <clears throat> as you say, that there is, you know, and I think it goes to my reading of Trump as purely performative. And I would, I'm not sure I even agree with you that that, that 20 percent, I think, I think it's, I think, of course, the people on the right wing, the, the never Trumpers, the people who just want their tax breaks to go through, of course, they understand what Trump is. But I would argue that even Trump's uneducated base, they even, you know, the so-called people who got into this whole Q thing about this sort of imaginary deep state conspiracy theory. I think that it's really like going to uh, a WWE match or a uh, or um, writing fan fiction. I think even it's ba- even the base. I think knows to a very large degree that Trump is essentially a sort of a fictional creation who is their symbolic revenge on the the liberal state, but. In terms of the Fox News transcripts, I think, you know, they they show a split, almost sh- shocking split between the official presentation of Fox News, which is is Trump is a sort of of magisterial statesman. I, 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 I actually watch precious little of Fox News, although I certainly tune in occasionally to see what the talking points are, the sort of constant um, code switching on Fox News is really fascinating that that we go constantly from the moment that we're on air that we go into a kind of um, genuflection toward toward Trump and then the moment Trump's off air they go back into a much more reasonable sounding I think that redounds to my point you know that we have been living in a reality TV bubble for at least 30 years, and that, you know, and again, there's an ancient history of this, both in in world politics, going back to, say, Caligula, but also in American politics coming up all the way through. I mean, people act as if Trump is some new signifier of politician as performer. I mean, certainly Ronald Reagan was simply an actor, and Schwarzenegger, everyone just guffawed when that happened. Um, I think Jesse Ventura is a terribly useful model. It's unbelievably important in people's life. You know, in a way, it swings back to to our earlier discussion. No, no, I was just saying, I'd completely forgotten about Jesse Ventura. You know, there there was uh, a performer, and dare I say, a buffoon. Whereas what you have to say about Reagan is, yes, he was a performer, but actually, he deeply held those the beliefs that he had. He deeply held them, sincerely held them. And there was some level of intellectual rigor behind his new right-wing populism that he brought to America in, in the 1980s. There absolutely I was. I mean, yeah. I'm not sure. I um, and, 
Well, no, 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 no. You, you have you have to you have to give Reagan credit where he believed in um, deregulating and ma- making the state smaller and f- moving away regulation. And it was a economic political kind of credo which he understood was he the greatest thinker ever no but he could follow the thought through in a way that trump can't and the other thing i'd say about schwarzenegger and i didn't i i don't know enough about his time when he was the governor of california but subsequently he's very thoughtful on um gerrymandering on so he's thought about the logjam of the American political process and and ways round it, reform around voting. He's very big on that, and it was a bit of a surprise for me because I must admit I just thought he was a bit a bit of a meathead or whatever. Right. But he, he he's much more thoughtful than than I gave gave him credit, and I will hold my hand up and say that I I didn't realize right. that. Whereas I think Jesse Ventura is Donald Trump that makes complete sense right. to me but um i forgot how we got on you know i guess you know fox news and performance and yeah you know america loves fun and games maybe more than any other culture that i can think of that um and that um and i, I guess at one point you want to swing back to obama or if, if you wanted to get to that later but that basically you know again i'm not saying anything by any means new but i think you know there's no way that Trump would be elected without Obama's election that, you know, that... Which bit of Obama was it then that meant the pendulum needed to swing back? Is it the obvious rapping that Obama comes in, he was black, so all of a sudden certain elements of white America are like, whoa, what the hell has happened here? We've had 43 of these beforehand. (laughs) The 44th was an aberration because of the way that he looks. We need to get back to type. Or is it the fact that he was a thoughtful uh, president, an intellectual, and as mu- though we that might chime with us, people who see ourselves in the, in the thinking professions. Mm-hmm. For some Americans, they wanted somebody who could visibly roll up their sleeves and not speak in such elevated tones, and somebody who, when I say looked like them, I, I don't mean skin color here. I mean just the spoke like. Right. I was always struck that when Reagan became the president. Us Brits, us Europeans were kind of shocked because he wasn't eloquent. In hindsight, there's a simple eloquence to Reagan. But at the time, people just thought he sounds a little bit thick. So I kind of understand, though I don't agree with it. I understand that some people, the soaring oratory of an Obama is actually a turn. It's a case of you're using too many words, big words and whatever. Tell it to me straight. Now, you can't get it more straight than how Trump speaks. Well, I think, you know, I think there is that constant dialectic in American presidential politics, almost president by president, going back at least, you know, from Eisenhower to Kennedy, Kennedy briefly to Johnson, but then to Nixon, then crucially Nixon to Carter, then crucially Carter to Reagan, then crucially, I think, Bush to Obama, I guess Bush, then, then Clinton becomes the counterweight to Bush, then the other Bush becomes the perfect counterweight to Clinton, 
And then, of course, I think I'm forgetting some of my chronology here, but then, um, of course, Bush becomes the counterweight, yeah, to Clinton. And then after Bush, Obama becomes, forget if I'm forgetting someone here in my chronology, but, you know, there's definitely this on the eloquence versus simplicity meter, uh, the corruption versus supposed purity meter. So part of it is a simple American course correction, which seems to go on virtually every five to 10 years as a kind of comical pendulum swing, mm. which sort of needs to just constantly go back and forth on a relatively narrow range of politics, but swinging, say, from, say, George Bush to Obama. So obviously part of it is Obama's soaring rhetoric versus Trump's of real guy speech. And I think there is a kind of genius. I mean, again, we could argue about it, and I don't particularly have the answer, but I mean, there's kind of a magical poetry when Trump says, I'm like really smart, okay? That's brilliant in the sense that no line conveys more totally that you're not smart than to say, I'm like really smart, okay? That's strange. And that line would resonate. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit or I'm giving his audience too much credit, but I think there's wonderful pushback against Obama in that particular line because Obama was, obviously is, was very invested in being perceived as smart and cool. And Trump isn't cool and he's not smart in the bookish way Obama is. You know, obviously it's not one answer. Is it only Obama being black or is it only Obama being highly educated and very silver-tongued. It's obviously both. But I think the blackness-whiteness thing is obviously massive. And again, I'm hardly the first person to point out that Trump's nearly first gesture of his supposed presidential campaign was, of course, coming down that golden elevator and going very, very first move was the Mexican rapists, they're crossing our borders, which one could easily see as, you know, a symbolic gesture toward all people of color and all transgressors, all violators, including, in effect, Obama. I think for people on the left or in big cities or people of color, people have no idea to what degree it freaked people out that I've said this to black friends and they agree with me that I think a lot of white people found it very odd to imagine, say, Barack and Michelle Obama having sex in the White House. I think that gave people pause. Like, it's like, what? It's called the White House. What are black people doing there? And, you know, I don't think that's (laughs) a coincidence that it's called the White House. And Obama's very, very complicated. I could easily write a book about him, about the way he calculates almost second by second how much whiteness and how much blackness to show. I mean, he's an utterly performative human being as well. And I think he has his own confusions, his own contradictions. I mean, I think he was a very, very disappointing president in many ways. But um, I do think a lot of the Black Lives Matters, the police attacks on pedestrians are sort of symbolic assassinations of Obama, and in the same way, as I think I argue in the book, that 
I think of Trump's presidency as being a sort of after the fact nullification of Obama's presidency. Of course, Trump does nothing but try and nullify every single Obama measure. Not to say that Trump cares about any of these things. It's obvious that he doesn't, but as sort of symbolic or not so symbolic mana for his political base. I don't know if you are following my reasoning here, if you agree with it. I absolutely do. And I think you're right that what Trump is trying to do is just to erase the fact that Obama was ever president of the United States. And everything that he's done reflects you. So this Iran deal, it's the worst deal ever. Mr. President, why? He couldn't tell you the reason why. It was terrible just because Obama, it happened on Obama's watch. That's all, you know. Uh, But we, we, we could go on. We could go on. Last question, David. Will Trump run again? Will he even last through his first term? Because he's a man that chimes with everybody to a degree, even those people that hate him. I know he, what you mean. We've been talking about him for an hour. Exactly. On some level, Trump must interest us as well. He absolutely, absolutely does. So he's like the perfect reflective, a reactive, sorry, kind of chemical element, isn't he? Um, so he's going to get people out to vote, right? whether right. they love him or loathe him. Right. So get your crystal ball out, sir. Get your Nostradamus cap out. How is this going to play out? That's the big question, isn't it? I think, you know, there is a chapter in the book called 28 Reasons Trump Will Be Re-Elected, but that's meant very obviously tongue-in-cheek. I'm being, that, that's a lot of reasons, 28. You know, I'm being slightly serious there, but I'm also being somewhat uh, snarky. Basically, there's sort of a 28, sort of a mini compilation of basically somewhat predictable moments in academic and media and journalistic and political culture that feel rather, again, for lack of a better word, politically correct or sort of virtue signaling. It's the very thing that Trump's base hates. You know, like, for instance, there's a new school of obedience training that doesn't allow punishment for the animal, you know, and all these things. And that I think Trump is a sort of revenge of the repressed. He is that part of us that is wildly primitive, wildly carnival-esque, you know, wildly hateful, wildly death-dealing. You know, there's a very deep part of the human animal that just craves, you know, as we've been saying, destruction and self destruction and you know obama in his own way is terribly tightly tucked in as is is hillary as in a way are media and political and journalistic and academic culture in the u.s and that trump what well, one one second then i think that's an interesting point we did kind of half touch on this before when we were talking about at least i took us down the road of saying that right-wing political um radio thought pieces are actually more entertaining than left-leaning ones what right-leaning politicians throughout the western world have realized is that appear to be yourself they seem to be able to do this much more than left-leaning ones so in britain we have boris johnson with his mop of hair which is really scruffy and he appears to be like an everyman you have um various italian politicians actually italy's uh this slight 
exception to this because you do have the Pepe Grillo's five star movement and they appear like we're just regular people too. Those populists in Germany, they see, they come across like real people in the way that Angela Merkel, who's a right leaning politician, she doesn't, she's, she's that stuffed shirt. So it's kind of chimes with something that you kind of said. It's really, I mean, it's really, I mean, part of me grandiosely sort of wants to think of this book as a manual for beating bullies and that I'm not sure the book is that or accomplishes that but you know part of me is asking that question which you and I have been dancing around which is why couldn't or shouldn't the left be as entertaining and as visceral I mean the left is supposedly connecting to the working class my god from Marx onward and so how the world does, say, Trump own blue collar? I mean, it's just preposterous. And obviously, a huge amount of theory has gone into how this has happened. But part of it is that I guess a famously humor is conservative. Basically, when you think of humor, you know, there's that famous line by Juvenal, the, the Roman satirist, who said, it's difficult not to write satire. That is to say, humans are full of foibles and that basically when you're being funny you're essentially making fun of the endlessness of human comedy or the endlessness of human absurdity and i think what the left is always trying to do alas is improve society improve human nature make us better people make a better and more just society blah 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 and that is rather, you know, it's not funny in the sense that it has an illusion of progress. You know, think of that that line that Obama always quotes, which I guess is from Martin Luther King, in which he says, you know, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. It's essentially that. But, um, you know, to, to circle back to your final question, Royfield, that, um, you know, I think if maybe I'm just speaking through my heart here. But basically, my guess, even though I have that chapter, 28 reasons why Trump will be reelected, if I had to guess, I would say Trump will not be reelected. I, I think he may not finish his term. I think he'll either quit or be impeached. I, I, I don't know if I'm being hopelessly optimistic, but that's my honest take. I think Mueller has so much on him. Trump seems to just offer rage. Has America got exactly what it needed with Trump? Yeah, I mean, that's almost a rhetorical question, isn't it? In that part of of what I argue in the book is that he, to a remarkable degree, I think he allows all of us, but particularly a certain kind of person, access to their deepest limbic system, some reptilian part of our brain, which Obama could not be more antithetical to, you know, Obama's all polish and eloquence and civilization. And you remember that Freud title, civilization and its discontents. I mean, that phrase has always stayed with me that underneath civilization is this raging repressed id. And, you know, Obama was just sort of impossibly monumental. You know, if he had a an official duty to perform, he would perform it to an almost self-parroting level of perfect performative grace, never inserting himself. And there's a sense in which... Hey, you know what? I, I don't, this is not a conversation about Obama per se. Obviously, this is all about Trump and your book. But 
we did get hints of Obama, you know, him singing Amazing Grace, did drop the mic at right. the, uh, you know, at the writer's dinner. So he did cry uh, after Sandy Hook. We did get hints of Barack Obama. True. And, or even that line where he said, um, that young man could have been my mm. son if I... Trayvon Martin. Uh, yeah, Trayvon. Even as I was saying that, I realized it wasn't 100% true, but it was always extraordinarily measured. It was always, you know, if he's saying five seconds of an Al Green song, it was all very much within a tiny Obama register. All presidents are performative, but Trump is, you know, as I say, he's kind of this fascinatingly bad personal essayist who at every single moment, even as recently as the last 24 hours, to me, I find it, I must admit, bottomlessly fascinating that here we have the Brett Kavanaugh thing happening, and he's been coached to be for a couple of days on his quote-unquote good behavior, but he actually had to say, I mean, it's fascinatingly destructive and self-destructive. It's destructive because it unleashes male id. It's self-destructive because it really harms his supposed political position. Trump, despite his advisor's best advice, actually came out and said in the last 24 hours, gee, if the assault was so bad, Kavanaugh's attempted rape of Christine Blasey Ford uh, 35 years ago, why didn't she report it to the FBI at the time? I mean, it's 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 a it's a preposterous thing, and you can just see the steam coming out of every woman's ears and of many men's ears. To me, it's like it's like that's Trump that he has to say the most awful thing because he just does. I mean, and that there's some part of America which is just it is absolutely primitive and that we don't believe in civilization here. And Trump is that thing. And it's both what's awful about him. It's weirdly catalyzing for certain people. It's weirdly liberating. It's crazy making. I mean, I think the more that we talk, Royfield, I just think, you know, post Obama, were we really going to get Hillary who's sort of, you know, Obama light, you know, she's Obama without magnetism or charm or eloquence or grace. He's just kind of bureaucratic Obama. And to me, the the interesting question going forward, of course, 2020, you asked me to predict, and I have perfect Nostradamus credentials. I've gotten every presidential election (laughs) right going back to Thomas Jefferson. I'd be surprised if the next president isn't, again, the anti-Trump, say, Kamala Harris, say, would be the early leader in the clubhouse, someone who's from the West Coast, who's both. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull you up, right, because I think what the one of the legacies of Trump is going to be for politicians all throughout the Western world is that it's going to be acceptable in inverted commas, in parentheses, admittedly, to be emotionally honest to a degree. Trump has maybe pushed the dial too far in in one direction. But Mm -hmm. you can see somebody like a Joe Biden, let's say, coming into that race in 2020 and being Uncle Joe Biden 
but plus being that little bit more, you know what, guys, this is actually what's on my mind. Don't get me wrong. Trump is not going to steer Joe Biden's politics. But as we said earlier on in the conversation, the one thing about the rise of the right has been that you have these politicians just say, well, that's that's just what I believe. I'm just right. being me. I'm authentic. It's all about authenticity. Uh, right. Nigel Farage in the UK uh, Boris Johnson also in the UK. Um, Macron, when he first ran in France, I know he's turned into a right. different animal now. Marie Le Pen, and, uh, yeah. Ex- exactly. These are people who just say, look, I'm a human being. I'm kind of like you, as opposed to I'm an elevated, eloquent right. philosopher, politician. And I think what Trump has done in the US is to say that, you know what, as as a politician, you can be more human. Uh, as I said, he's probably pushed the needle too far. Uh, so you will see an Uncle Joe Biden um, having little fireside chats with America, but being talking about, you know, the death of his son and talking. And you've even seen it when he says things like, if I'd have been a teenager and I'd seen a Trump, I'd have punched him on the nose. That is not kind of political kind of speak from somebody who was a vice president or somebody who's potentially right. maybe running for high so, office. So he's so bad though. I mean, I, I, I don't, maybe we can have a, a debate the next time on how awful Biden is. I mean, he is just, he is just awful in my view. I mean, he is so, I, I just find him appallingly bad that, that he gets everything wrong. Like for instance, you know, he was horrible in the Anita Hill hearings he was horrible. I in, think you've um, been and he's harsh, just not David, very, because what he's not very smart. He's just not line by line, and just he's just so corny and so sentimental. He's a big bag of empty wind to me. But <laughs> well, listen, I'll tell you what. Right, many people have said that about me. I am incredibly sentimental and a big bag of wind. So, David Shields, and it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Likewise, um, Roy. So, so great to have. Good uh, to meet you. Uh, listen, good to meet you also, sir. So just remind everybody of the title of your book and when it's going to be out. Which you got horribly wrong at first, Roy Hill. You said nobody loves Trump. It's nobody hates Trump more than Trump, an intervention. David, you've just spoiled the whole editing process because by the time I've edited that, there will be no mistake That's in it at all. So, but <laughs> thank you for shining it, light onto the, my proficiency in editing. Who even said what? I didn't make a mistake <laughs> at all. All right, and, and when is it out? Uh, it's the pub date is Monday, September twenty fourth. Fantastic, fantastic, and of course you can get it from all good bookshops and dare I say it, that big bookshop in the cloud on the internet <laughs> as well. So, uh, David Shields, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. Folks, you heard it uh, here first. Um, This isn't just another one of those Trump books. This is one which shines a light on America just as much as it does on its commander-in-chief. I've been Roy Brown. This has been Mid-Atlantic. You can follow us on Twitter, where we are, Mid-Atlantic Show. Uh, David, do you live on Twitter? Uh, Yes, I do. I'm not hugely active on Twitter, alas, but I do have uh, a Twitter feed. Uh, why don't you tell us what it is? 
<laughs> I don't even know. what. I think it's just at David Shields or something like that. Okay, so there you go, folks. Just uh, go follow David at, at David Shields. And also you can follow me where I'm at Royfield. But um, as David has realized, I post very little politics on my feed because I just get exhausted by it. But, you know, go follow me if you want to see uh, me celebrate my beloved Cleveland Browns winning their first game in I know. Years. Wasn't that absolutely lovely? I know. You never heard me yelp so loud in the bar when actually they won. And uh, our new first round uh, rookie draft pick, uh, quarterback, he just played out of his skin. Good luck to the boy. Last night, I I sort of watched the 12 minute highlight film of it and it gave me such joy. Not to connect everything to Trump, but you know, it, it gave me shivers just watching for, for 10 minutes when they won. And the last shall be first. And that I think a lot of what Trump gave people amazingly is just that uh, it was good to feel joy. And I think for the five million people who voted for Hillary and then I mean, who voted for Obama and then switched and voted for Trump, Hillary wasn't going to let them feel any joy of winning. She was just going to offer sort of bureaucratic as is anyway david david i share david, i share your joy that? with the brown uh, well well thank you sir thank you sir uh, we, we we're not exactly the seattle seahawks um when it comes to uh, recent success in, right. in the nfl so for us that was our super bowl uh, <laughs> exactly. the lonely jets you know? <laughs> but uh right uh, coming back onto that last point are you seriously telling me that let's say the common wisdom is that five million people voted for Obama and switched to Trump. That's a common received wisdom. And let's take that well, as red. Yeah and, and, yeah. and let's say that Trump slightly appealed to men more than he appealed to women. I think that'd be fair to say also. So let's say that two thirds of that five million vote was male. That still gives us about, what, 1.5 million, if my maths is kind of right, I'm just doing off the top of my head, 1.5 million women. Do you think none of them would have got any level of joy just seeing a woman inhabit the Oval Office? It's a good you know, question. Would have, there would have been I mean, some joy with... Uh, with a, a Hillary presidency, you know, the glass ceiling would have been broken. We've had an, an African-American right. male. Then we followed a woman. Right. I think it's, I mean, it's a good question. Obviously, these the physicality of it, the viscerality of it, the primitiveness of it, that basically, you know, as everyone says, it was just 50,000 votes that moved the Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, that those, let's just take those four states, the, the the margin of difference the margin total of difference was no more than fifty thousand votes. So you know, and all, those are those sort of upper midwestern states in which again huge football states, Big Ten football, and it basically a friend of mine is I say in the book he went to the RNC convention in Cleveland, coming back to Cleveland in twenty sixteen, and he dropped acid. I think in the book I say she dropped acid, but anyway. She dropped acid and uh, just saw with unbelievable clarity when Trump appeared before the convention that she knew to an absolute certainty that Trump would win. And I, think, I mean, again, it's easy to backform this sort of, of wisdom because Trump did win. 
again, there would be women who would feel joy, but it would be a kind of, uh, I don't know, what would you call it? A kind of career joy. There's something so primitive about Trump, obviously. It's limbic. It's reptilian. It's absolutely prehistoric. And Hillary is not, that whatever she is, she's not prehistoric. She's she's Wellesley, Yale, the White House. And, and so that joy does not spring up off of her her spirit. Well, I'll tell you what, Mr. Shields. Joy has been manifest from my spirit after this great interview. Hopefully, sir, uh, we can keep in contact and we'll Absolutely. have you on again soon. Lovely to chat. Take care, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.